This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people. I think art and creativity make the world go around, make life worth living. And today my guest is an author. His name is Alexander Cheeves. His book is called My Love is a Beast Confessions. It's a memoir about his life. And uh, I first came upon Alexander's writing in Out Magazine, or The Advocate. I think it was Out, though. Um, and he's a sex columnist, and there was something about his language, his thoughts. It, it just landed with me. I just thought it was beautiful and, and interesting and provocative, and so I reached out to him on Instagram. I saw that he had a book coming out months later. The book finally came out. I read it. I loved it. I tracked him down again, and we made it happen. So um, it's a very interesting interview. He's a beautiful writer. He's very frank. He's very honest. Um, some of you might think it's pretty edgy stuff, but... I think so much damage is done by people not being honest about sex. And uh, I look at my own life and I think that. And so I admire when people do it and do it well. And that is certainly Alexander. But before we get to the interview, I want to remind you there are two ways to listen to this podcast. You can listen, as you always do, on whatever podcast app you love or Spotify or any of those services. Or... You can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. For $12.95 a month, you get access to my show 48 hours early, and you also get to listen to all the other amazing shows that are part of DNR Studios. So to learn about that, go to dnrstudios.com. And also, I have a voicemail. So if you want to leave a voicemail about anything that you hear on the show, you can call 1-888-647-9653, and I might play your message on the show. All right. That's enough for the plugs. Here is the interview with Alexander Cheeves. Joining me now from Queens, New York, it's author Alexander Cheeves. His book is My Love is a Beast, Confessions. Alexander, I'm so happy to talk to you. I've been a fan of your work for a while, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I was trying to remember, I reached out to you on Instagram because I read something you wrote in Out Magazine and I don't even remember what it was, but the writing was so vivid and honest and moving. I was like, I wonder who this guy is. He's really talented. And so I reached out. I saw you had a book coming out. I waited for the book to come out. I bought the book. I loved the book. I reached out to you again, and here we are. So um, congrats on uh, on your book. Um, how did Thank it you. begin? It's a memoir. Um, it's it's stories from your life. How did the how did the process of making the book happen happen? Well, I certainly didn't set out to write a memoir. I mean, who writes a memoir at 30, right? But, right. Um, you know, but uh, originally it was just supposed to be a collection of my best previously published work. And when we got all the permissions from The Advocate and Out Magazine and all the other magazines I've written for, and they approved us to republish some of my stuff, when we put it in a book form, it just didn't work. It, it, it didn't work as a book. And the strongest parts about it were some of the personal essays we sort of snuck in there, some of which came from my blog. Some of them were parts of essays that I had published elsewhere. And so we, we kind of went back to the drawing board and we realized that this isn't a collection of published work. It's a collection of essays. And even then, I didn't think it was going to be a memoir. And I, I still, to be honest, I still see the book as... A collection of essays. I we had to sort of sell it as a memoir because memoirs are doing really well right now. But um, I still see it as sort of a collection of sort of lyrical memoir essays. But they're personal, and when you put personal essays in timeline order, voila, you have a memoir. Yeah. So yeah, that's what it ended up. That's what it kind of ended up being. What was that moment like when you realized, oh, that original idea of the published stuff is going to work? Is it a little bit like, oh? I guess I have to dig deeper. I guess I have to write oh, more. Oh, so much work. Yeah, no, that's the <laughs> so thing. I know that thing where I'm like, I'm just going to do this. And then you're like, no, not going to, that's not going to fly. Not going to fly. How do you describe the book to people that don't know anything about you or it? Well, I, I built a readership based on writing about sex advice and sex education pieces and like sex 101s. And so when I tell people that I have a book out, I think if they are familiar with my work, they assume that it's sex ed. Right. And and so then I just say, well, I've been writing about other people's sex life for 10 years, so I decided to just write about mine. 
And that's as simple as it is. I mean, obviously the book is more than that, but at its base, at its most basic, it's a story about my sex journey. Right. And a lot of the encounters that you write about are tied to other issues and other themes. So all these other things come into play. It's really beautiful how it all, all works together. When did you know you loved to write and when did you know you were good at it? Oh, I don't think anybody knows they're good at it. <laughs> or when did you sort of get validation or when did you think, okay, this is, I, I, I could build a life around this. Um, well, that's a, that's a lovely question. And I, I've done a, uh, I've done a few interviews and I, nobody's asked me that. Um, I, I went to college for a more technical writing program. It right. was sort of centered around nonfiction and business writing, professional writing, stuff like that. So it was not a literary writing program. It was a, it was like a, it was a technical writing program. Um, and so the, and so there was the very, very small focus on poetry and fiction and whatnot. It, it, it was more heavily geared towards reporting. Um, so I never planned to be this kind of writer. I always planned to be like a blogger or a content writer or something like that. And, and, uh, and that's what I ended up doing. I, I, I started a blog while I was in college and it was actually a classroom assignment and it ended up getting, it created enough of a buzz to where an LGBTQ magazine in Chicago that no longer exists found the blog and asked me to write for them. And then I used that to sort of work my way to the advocate. I, I got an internship and, and they liked me. And so I moved to LA and the rest is history. Uh, in terms of feeling like I'm, good at it I, I think that the book is the best thing I've, I've, I've ever written I, um, I, 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 I can't say that before I got the book contract I was this is just how life works right when because I was, I, was, I was talking to different people about publishing a book and talking to different people at publishing houses and whatnot, and I didn't think that the book was going to happen. And I was honestly planning on leaving writing. I, I was, I was ready to, I had been doing it for 10 years and it was a good run. And I was applying to grad school and I was looking to actually put this career to rest and do something that was a, a bit more practical, like something in tech or something like that. Cause you know, I mean, when you write content, when you write for magazines, even advertorial content for brands, there's not a whole lot of money in it and it's hard to make it. And I live in New York city and it was just uh all the signs were pointing to me that it's time to do something else, which for me meant going to grad school. And the day that I got the, a call from a friend who worked for Unbound, which published the book, the day that I got that call was actually the same day that I applied to a grad program at Harvard. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, and so it was just this perfect sort of moment where I realized, oh, okay, I'm going to do this book and it's going to be my sayonara. It's going to be my goodbye to the writing world. And um, I'm so grateful that it's not my goodbye to the writing world because this is exactly the kind of writing that I want to do. Well, so. I feel like you're meant to do it. And I, I got to be honest, I was a little nervous to interview you. I'm a little intimidated because we're very different. You're 30. I'm in my 50s. Um, you have explored your sexuality a lot. I have less so in a way that I feel like I maybe missed the boat. And yet I think what connected me to you is there's a brutal honesty about what you write about and the way you write about it, particularly in terms of yourself. And I think that's how I'm sort of reckoning with where I'm at now with that stuff. I'm honest about it. And when I have conversations with friends I feel close to, I'm honest about it. And that I thought your stuff lands because it's so honest and it's so true. Um, as you were approaching this, what was, was it hard to write about these stories to be this Frank or was it like, oh, if sure. I'm going to do it, it's gotta be like this. Sure. It, it, good writing should scare you a little bit. I, I really, I really believe that. I, I think that, I, I mean, I had a really great teacher in college who, you know, would tell me like, I mean, I'm still using his lessons, but you need to have like your tells, you know, and the way that I can tell when a work is when I'm on the right chord is when it starts to kind of freak me out a little bit. When I, when I start asking, Ooh, should I put this out there? 
Right. Whenever that question is raised while writing, that's a sign that, yes, I should. Um, because if it doesn't challenge me, it's not going to challenge the reader. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I, I fully believe that readers can tell if you hold something back. Readers are smart. You know, readers are, readers are, especially now, I mean, this, the book industry is doing well and there's so many, you know, f- like fan culture has sort of taken a hold of the book world. And so readers, readers know when you're, when you practice restraint and nobody, I don't think that makes for compelling writing. And, and so I, I knew that I had to put everything on the page and, um, and there are parts of the book that still scare me. You know, my parents haven't read this book. I don't imagine they ever will. But, you know, I, I, I'm running into the situation now where complete strangers know me better than my therapist, you know, yeah. So, in, in some respects. And so that is a it, – it certainly has been an adjustment, you know, in my personal life to have such confessional work out there and being read by people. Right. You write about the conversation about being gay with your father that you had. And the things that were said and how they sort of haunt the book. Was that hard to write about that? Or can you say a little bit about that? Sure. So when I, I mean, I guess I'll just tell for listeners when I, when I came out, my, I had a very religious upbringing and my father was, my parents are very religious. They live in the deep South in a farm in Georgia. And, um, and, and, and I actually never specify, I never specify where the farm is in the book. So surprise, it's in Georgia. Um, and, uh, and it was a brutal coming out. It was actually worse than I imagined it would be. I was actually kind of hoping that it would be gentler than it was. And it, it was, it was pretty hard. It was, um, it was pretty rough. Uh, it was, I mean, you know, Eight years later, I would, or Jesus, not even six years later, I would, I would turn HIV positive. And, and I always, and I remember when I tested positive, it was also rough, but it, I remember thinking, this is bad, but this isn't nearly as bad as coming out. And I got through that so I can get through this. It was a rough patch. And, and my dad said some things that still sit with me. And, and I think because he, he managed to sort of find the one thing that, most gay men are terrified of. Yeah. He called my, he called my sex life poop. He said that it was my future that I would, he literally like painted this sort of grotesque picture of this like shit smelling apartment. And, um, and I don't know if he, he, he knew nothing about gay men or gay sex. And so he, he could not have known how on the nose he was, how, how, how he struck the chord of shame that every man who has sex with men that I know has, is we are all culturally conditioned to fear something that our bodies do naturally. And he managed to just spit that out. And it was so, so profoundly and so profoundly affecting. And, uh, that is a, that is a, that was hard to write about, but also I knew that that was the heart of the book in some ways Right. that, cause the book, if anything, if it, if it does anything, I hope it combats shame Right. And in order to combat shame, you have to give a name and define that which you are most ashamed of. And that, that was it. Right. And that conversation comes up a number of times throughout the book in times when you're moving through it and you're transcending it or you're embracing, you know, you talk about having sex with somebody that isn't clean and guess what? It's okay. Like you, you sort of, it echo, it has, it echoes throughout the book. And you mentioned shame and it's interesting because I feel like within gay culture, I have shame that I haven't done these things as much. Like that I, that I feel a bit uh, like I, I missed the boat a little bit and some of that stuff and maybe my age sure. or different things. But it, it's interesting how shame can express itself in different ways. Um, in what ways are you still like a Southern boy at heart? I mean, I'm polite. <laughs> and right, I like that's good. good. I, like, I like buttery, rich, heavy food. You know, I You want to say I, no I to a tell- biscuit? Well, say no to a biscuit. I can tell good fried chicken from bad fried chicken. I know how to make peach cobbler, you know. Um, but I, but I, I will say that the that the most profound impact the South has had on me is it's taught me that I don't want to live there. I yeah. I, 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 I I have made that after living in the South, I I admire the queer progressives who choose to stay. I think that they're the reason why Atlanta is what it is now. But that's. 
especially if you're staying in small towns and, you know, when you, if you're outside the cities across the deep south, I mean, that that's an admirable job. It's not my job. Yeah. And I will never move back there. Yeah. In what ways did the religious part of your upbringing stay with you? Is there any part about that? that... In the same way it stayed with every gay man who grew up in the church. Right. Um, it Religion is a really effective tool for institutionalizing and mandating shame. Yeah. They, they're, yeah. they're built for it. They're, 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 that's the engine by which it runs. Actually, can I go back to, to what, to what you said about shame? I mean, I, yeah, no, I'm interested in it. I, I think part of what I was drawn to this conversation is because I think I admire your honesty in so many ways and you, and we're, yet we're very different. And so I'm just, uh, was excited to talk to you. Well, what I would say is, you know, a really important book that I recommend everybody read. I mean, it's, 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 it's not a new book in the sex dialogue, but, you know, The Ethical Slut by Dossie Easton and Janet Hardy, what makes it such, such a beautiful book is it sort of at the outset, it says that there's no amount of sex that is ideal, right? You know, you would think that a book titled The Ethical Slut would be built on the presupposition that you should have as much sex as possible and that a hedonistic sort of libertine sex life is best. And I, I, I don't think that's true. And I think that sex positive doesn't necessarily mean promiscuous. You know, you can have a positive view, view of human sexuality and not have a ton of sex. I think there's monogamous and very traditional sex positive people out there who people like me and the rest of the world could learn a lot from, you know, uh, it, it, because sex positivity is, is a perspective, not, a lifestyle um and 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 just in the same way that it's not shameful to have a high number of partners it's also not shameful to have a low one there is no because there's no ideal there's no you know there's no version of a fulfilling sex life that is best now if someone wants more sex they should be free to have it and if someone wants less sex or has less sex then that's perfectly okay i i, I I understand the feeling of missing out. I think everybody does, but you know, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's, there should be any shame attached to one's own perspective of their sex life because it it can be truly divorced from shame. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the goal. I think you write in the book about you're being 30 at a time with prep and hookup apps. And it's sort of like this sexy time. Right. And that, Maybe people yeah. my age um, look down on and, and, and sort of resent it in a way. I don't. I think good for you. I think rock it out. Um, but do you ever feel resentment from people because it's that, that, that you're not dealing with some of the obstacles that we were dealing with? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. How All do they the express time, it? I mean, uh, you know, luckily, my I mean, my closest friends are people who are you know of previous generations to me. And so, so for the most part, I don't get a lot, but every, but I mean, I've been an escort for, you know, 10 years now. And so every now and then I will get a client who is typically older, who is bitter and hurt, wounded. You know, I mean, I mean, I I live in New York. There's a lot of men here who've been here a long time who lost everyone. Who Who saw it all. Yeah. And they're, and they're, the sad thing about them is that there's very little spaces and very little, you know, there's very little place in modern day gay culture in this city for them, which is just awful, you know? And so they're unspeakably alone. They're unimaginably alone in these lush, opulent apartments, you know, and they, their partners have either passed away or they're divorced. And, and, and these are the men to whom we owe, so many of the medical advancements and so many of the rights that we have now, and yet they are all but abandoned wow. by our, by our modern day community and our culture. And so I, 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 I understand completely any sense of resentment, any sense of having missed the boat because it isn't fair. You know, if, if I was the generation to have to sort of, 
buckle, lace up my shoes and fight a plague only to see kids 20 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later, try to police what I can say and change my words and, and enjoy this sort of newfound bacchanalia that I never got to experience because I was too busy fighting for my life. If that was me, I would be angry. Yeah. Because that's not fair. It's not fair to, to come of age at a time of law of, of un, unprecedented, uncalculable loss, loss that anybody my age can't truly fathom. Yeah. Speaking of that idea of loss, there's a passage in the book that I love. And uh, I reached out to you in advance and, and asked if you would read it. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, this is from My Love is a Beast, Confessions. And you talk about a few different people in this passage. Does it need any setup, do you think, to, to explain well, what we're talking yeah. about? Yeah. The, the essay is called Heaven, and it's a dirge. <laughs> it's about... I love a good dirge, by the way. Who doesn't? I love a good dirge, right? Right. Yeah. No, this, this is my favorite essay in the book, but also it, this is my favorite passage in the book. And in the essay, I talk about a few people who I've lost, uh, two, two to cancer, one my age almost exactly, and one a few years, 10, 10, or, 10 or so years older than me. Um, both gay men, both at the prime of their lives, both young and happy and healthy who just just were gone, you know, in such a short amount of time to, to cancer. And then the Lady Chablis, the, the famous sort of trans performer in Savannah, which is where I first sort of came out and discovered that I was gay. Right, um, Midnight in the Garden of Good Needle. From Midnight in the Garden of Good Needle, yeah. yeah the lady, I mean, my first drag show was The Lady Chablis. I love that. You wrote, you wrote about that in the book, and I saw that you got to do a reading in that club. Is that right? I, 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 yeah, when I, when, when I toured through Savannah, I got to read on The Lady Chablis stage. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is the same place where, like, this is, my first gay, this is my first moment in a gay bar. That's a really high bar for your first moment in a gay bar. Like, I feel like That's it's all downhill from there, isn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, she was so iconic. And, and honestly, I was too... I didn't know her history. I didn't truly know who she was and how famous she was until, until, until later. Um, I, I saw her... I saw her knowing her degree of celebrity before she died. I saw her several times while I lived there. But the first time I saw her, I thought I was just watching a mouthy cocktail performer, you know, tease right. everybody in the crowd. And she's truly an icon, um, which is an overused word, but it's in her case, it's true. Um, and then, of course, she died before I left Savannah. And um, And so the whole essay is just about the people who should be here. Yeah. You know, do you want me to, do you want me to read? Yeah. So at the end of the essay, throughout the book, there are these sort of dream sequences, these sort of, they're always in italics, which is kind of how how they, how I separate them from the, from the rest of the text. And whenever text appears in paragraphs of italics in the book there, it's always a sort of dream fantasy sequence, something that isn't strictly real and the essay heaven ends with one of those dream sequences of me in heaven this is from my love is a beast confessions the essay called heaven it is a painful thing to get through but now i'm here and it's fabulous it looks just like the saint the demolished east village disco i recognize the layout Somehow, I have been here before. Hills of Kathmandu by Tantra is playing. I walk through the downstairs bar. Men in leather vests turn their heads as I pass. And I walk up a massive industrial ramp. I'm on a round dance floor. It's enormous. And overhead, the dome, the fabled dome, it arches over us like some small heaven flashing with lights along the curved walls. And the lights, the lights, they project from the mothership, an alien-looking hunk of machinery lifting on hydraulics from the middle of the room. And I know that there's a spit space station planetarium projector in the middle of it. And then there's Cadillac. 
He's dancing toward me, sharp-eyed again, crystal blue. He comes up and kisses me on the cheek. I try to ask forgiveness for not texting him, but the music is too loud. And then Steve appears, fresh from fucking his brains out on the third floor. We all do drugs and they hit perfectly, all at the right moment. And over the roar of the music, I hear a skating reed and turn to see a blue dress and a French twist vanish into the crowd. And we dance. We dance with our fathers, the uncles we should have known, the ones who should have guided us. And they kissed their lovers, the ones they lost. Everyone lost in the plague has found each other again. And we dance. And the machine rises from the middle of the room. The lights fall. The planetarium comes to life. And in a moment, all I can see is stars. All around us. Stars. Wow. All right. <laughs> I kind of doing the Oprah ugly cry there for a second, but that's beautiful. Thank you for doing that. That's great. <laughs> I, I, really, I really loved it. And something that struck me at the beginning of that is, you know, like I talked about, sometimes I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm with it and all of that stuff. But the dance floor is a place where I feel wonderful, where I feel confident, where I feel like I got it going on. It's, it's magic to me. What is it yeah. to you? What do you think of dance floors? It's tough because they're, they're my favorite place on earth. You know, there's no place that I've never felt closer or connected or more loved or more part of a family. Uh, but I'm deaf in my right ear. I'm at least 50% deaf. I'm actually losing my remaining hearing at a faster rate than we realized, mm. which I actually learned since the book came out. And so I, I'm very, very rapidly reaching a point where I'm really not going to be able to justify going to big, loud dance palaces filled with music. And that's hard. You know, they're, they're, they are difficult for me now. Too much noise overwhelms right. me and I lose, I lose my balance. I, I'm already noticing my balance going, you know, you need, you need both ears to sort of balance your body. And I, I, I don't have that. So um, I always have to now keep an earplug in. And, and so I'm, I can't talk to anybody. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm on my way out of the dance world, which was such an essential part of my development as a gay man. Um, and, and I guess I've been in sort of a period of mourning for that. Yeah. yeah I, I, I've had to sort of slowly let that go. But I, I can say that heaven, <laughs> heaven's a dance floor. <laughs> I can't think floor. of anything. Yeah. Heaven's a, heaven's a gay bar, man. It, it, I can't think of anything more beautiful, more, more, intimate, more real feeling. And, 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 and it's so easy. I mean, one thing that I, that I sort of have mixed feelings on is that, you know, circuit Queens, the gay men who go to dance parties a lot, yeah, they get, they get sort of derided and teased and sort of, you know, cut down a size so easily. Right. I'll give you an example. Uh, when, like there was during COVID, there was some circuit party in Puerto Vallarta and the, one of the boats yeah. sank, and people were delighted, delighted. And I said, you know what? If it had been bear week, they wouldn't have been delighted. They're upset because it's the Hawkeyes. It's, they're upset because yeah. it's the Hawkeyes that don't want to fuck you. That's yeah. why you're being bitchy on Twitter. Um, that and, said, that footage was kind of crazy. Oh, it was great. <laughs> no, I loved it. But I was just like, I was just like, I, I completely understand. I mean, where's the humanity here? Like, I completely right. understand that in a time of global lockdown. Right. I understand the irrational, but in a sense, completely rational desire to dance on a boat with all your, with all your friends, right? Yes. That, that feels like love, you know? And granted, no, it's not smart. It's not, it's not considered. Right. It's not if it had been a group of lesbian archaeologists... People would not be bitchy on Twitter. No, no, no. It, 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 circuit queens are so easy to make fun of. But, and, and, I, and I do think that, you know, if 
you know, I, I don't think it's a healthy lifestyle. I mean, I, I, I'm a little bit older. I can't go out and dance every single weekend. And I know people far older than me who are going to parties every single weekend. And I, you know, I do worry about them. I mean, there's, you know, I don't, I don't think that heavy, heavy circuit queens, I don't think that they are necessarily healthy. But that said, I can't tease anybody for wanting to feel that beauty and connection and legitimacy and legitimizing that that experience has yeah and i you know i I, my, my wish for everyone who is queer would be to you don't have to be a circuit queen you don't have to go every weekend you don't have to party every time you don't have to be a hard partier but my wish for every queer person no matter what body type they have or how they identify is to have at least one magical euphoric night on a dance floor you know you don't even have to have sex like it's not a it doesn't you know they 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 are there is a sexual tone to some parties but i i guess i just i would want everybody to to have a dance floor experience because in my life it's been one of the most healing experiences just being in a room full of a, a few hundred people just dancing together that feels like community, you know, in ways that you don't necessarily get outside of that space. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, you write about body image in the book. How has your relationship to your body evolved over the years? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> well, you're pretty. You're really honest about it. So, like, how? Because it seems like it goes in waves, right? Oh sure. I I have the same body dysmorphia that most of <laughs> most of the K population has. Um, I don't understand people who who don't struggle with body image. I I I I mean I guess they're out there, but I don't I certainly don't know any. I've worked so hard to, you know, achieve what I hope is like a certain level of physical, you know, desirability in in the gay world and I and and it, and I I think most of us, you know, just me, I, I, I would be embarrassed to admit like how much work and supplements and everything I put into that. Um, but that's the, that's the culture I'm part of. And I don't have the, you know, I don't have the, whatever it is, that magical ingredient that some people seem to possess to just not. Not give need, a fuck. You know, yeah. You, to not you give a give fuck. Work, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what that ingredient is, but that's, uh, I don't have that. So. Have you had this experience, you're pretty young yet, where you look back at an older photo of yourself and you're like, I was super cute. Why did I feel so crappy about myself? All the, all the time. I used to, oh my God, you don't even realize how good your skin is at 23 until you get a little older and you look back at that photo and you're like, oh, I, I, I had to do nothing to have that. Yeah. Oh, and, that was and my regimen. My regimen was um, 24 hours of nothing a day. Yeah. 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 I, and that's, uh, th- those days are gone, buddy. <laughs> all right. All right. But we all do what we can. You, you write about on one of your blog posts how you write, and I thought it was very interesting. It has to do with talking, right? Yeah. Your process. Can you talk a little about that? Um, when I write, I actually speak aloud. So, you, you, so you're not doing it in a Starbucks. You're doing it at home. I do it at home. I, I cannot write in a place where I can't talk um, as a rule because I, I, when I'm right, I am actually transcribing my own voice. I, 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 to me, the process is weird. The process of writing for me is the story, then to voice, then to text. I mean, I even edit the same way too Like, because you can hear it. You have to be able to hear it before you like generally the ear, when you train your ear you can hear like grammatical errors or when a sentence just doesn't work you can hear it before you see it on the page because you get text blindness you get page blindness and yeah. you'll you know you will miss things visually that you that you that you won't miss when you say it aloud so i just kind of skip a step and i just say it aloud to start off with and I find that when I, when every every writer has writer's block and sometimes or you don't know how to start something or end it i find that if I just look away from whatever it is I'm doing and just talk, I can get it because you can actually get sort of caught up in the business of writing. You can actually get caught up in like, I'm putting words on a page and that, 
that that's where you get mired there. That's where I get mired. Right. Whereas when I just look away and I'm like, okay, forget, like, I'm not writing an essay. I'm, what am I actually talking about? Talking about. And when I look away and just start talking about it, I'm like, oh, okay, there it is. We're, we're back on track. We're back on track. And I think that's why your stuff lands. Like it lands. I think there's some writers who they know all the right words and you can tell there's a lot of effort, but it doesn't land. And I think maybe part of your process is why it speaks to people. Like me, oh, thank for example. You. Um, with your sex advice column and the book and stuff, have you heard from people who have been positive, positively affected by your advice or what you've written? Do you ever hear from somebody to say, hey, I did that thing you said and dot, dot, dot? Um, well, by both. Um, the sex advice column, for sure. Uh, my blog, primarily. My blog, my blog seems to get the most um, sort of hey, this worked out for me kind of messages. But, um, you know, the response to the book has been really beautiful. I, and, and, and honestly, it's a small publisher. It's not a, it's not a big press. And, and, you know, Simon & Schuster would have never let me publish a book like this, I don't think. Um, it's way too graphic for a mainstream press. And so I honestly was not expecting the book to be very noticed. And so I've been very surprised by the book's performances. And really, I thought that I, I, like when I published the book, I was like, readers are going to be with me up until a certain point. And like, I thought that surely once they got to some of the fisting or some of the heavier stuff that I would, that I was writing a book that would not have mass appeal. And I, and I still think it is a book that doesn't have mass appeal. I mean, it, it, you know, fisting certainly isn't going to be read by moms, but, um, the book has been better than I thought. <laughs> so have people are been, ready. Have there been surprising people that, that have responded straight women, for example? No, not a whole lot. I, I certainly can't say all the numbers. Like I don't know, I don't know all the statistics, but I, my, my readership for the book is probably the same as my readership for like my, my blog and my advice column. It's, it's probably predominantly men, men who are older than me. Um, and my age, my age and up, you know, what is it? There's some staggering number, like 75%, if not more of all book buyers are married women. Wow. So if you want to go to go a commercial book, you have to write a book that has an appeal to, to middle-aged women. You got to aim for Reese Witherspoon. You got to aim for Reese Witherspoon. Witherspoon. Yeah. And, uh, Luckily, and I'm I, usually doing that. So it works yeah. out. Um, you write... I don't think my book has that. Yeah. Although, wouldn't that be a fun twist? I would love to see that, uh, or maybe her in the movie version. Um, you write about going to a bathhouse in the wake of the Pulse nightclub shooting and the way they're connected and how that felt like a safer place to be. It, I just thought it was, like, unexpected, but it made sense. Yeah, I was only a few hours away from Pulse. Wow. Um, you know, Atlanta, Atlanta, I could have driven to... I mean, I've, I, drew, I grew up driving to Orlando for a day trip. I mean, Orlando wasn't that far. In fact, the, this, this mostly got cut from the final essay, but the essay starts with um, I'm at a clothing optional gay campground for a weekend in Tennessee where I have no cell service. So I don't even learn about Pulse until two days later. And I haven't responded to anyone's messages for like 48 hours. And everyone thought I was dead. Oh, my are you okay? Are you okay? Let us know oh, where you are. Because oh, nobody knew where I was. My sister had texted me so many times. My, I think I got a text from my mother. You know, I got texts from friends. I didn't tell anybody that I was going to camp out at a nude campground for a weekend because who? You know, it's nobody's business. I didn't post about it on Facebook. So it was completely rational for me to have gone to Orlando and danced in a night. If I was ever going to go to Orlando, I would go dancing at a club. That's right. just what I, that's what I did whenever I went to any other city. So when people didn't hear back from me and Pulse happened, everyone, everyone thought, everyone who texted me and I didn't respond thought I was dead. Um, so I, I, I mean, we didn't even have a radio, you know, there was no cell signal. There was no service at the campground. And so we were driving back and Pulse was already like more than a day old by that point, if not two days. And we turn on the radio and we hear about it. And by that time they already have the count. They know how many, right. you know, the, the final count. And, um, it was just, 
it was so it was so scary it was um yeah i started going to the bathhouse because it felt like a safer option than a bar right and you talk about they have the glass on the entryway like the thick glass and like like it's sort of built more securely in a way yeah yeah, yeah you, can, you can't really just walk into a bathhouse you have to you know, you have to talk to the check-in attendant. You have to get permission. You know, you, they have to, there was just like this giant steel door that they had to like press a button to even get open. So, you know, you can't, you can't just casually walk in. And I was like, well, then it's safer, Yeah. you know, not where otherwise, I mean, anybody can walk into any gay bar in Atlanta. Yeah. And you also and it, write about the mental, like it was a place to kind of escape in a way. Uh, oh, it was a com- total dropout from life for yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, that's what sex can be. Like, I went there and just had a lot of sex and did a lot of drugs and needed to sort of be out of my life for a little bit. And um, and while, you know, I might have not been the healthiest, I mean, nobody was. We were all processing sex. Can be healing. It, I, I needed to just sort of be close to gay men i needed to you know where else am i gonna go for healing but among my own yeah no it makes sense i um as i talk to you i'm looking at my dog sleeping on the bed and he's got a gay pride collar on that my roommate made for him but my memory of pulse in terms of where i was i had taken the dog home from the adoption agency and in kind of a rent to own thing so there's like two weeks and you get to side and I was sitting on the couch watching the news about Pulse and being horrified and devastated. And I checked my phone, and they had run the credit card for my dog without talking to me about it. So I, that dog, I was like, well, I guess, I guess we're together. And that's yep. when they're always been connected to me. Uh, those two things, the, the, that horrible shooting, and the day that I got my dog. Because um, uh, normally there's a process where you're like, yes, I want the dog. No, they just ran the credit card. I was like. Well, here we are. Guess uh, so. Yeah, so that's the story of that. What's your dog's name? His name's Enzo. E N Z O. He's he's adorable. Do you have pets? My my person has a has a has a hundred pound pit bull that I that I take care of. Sometimes. Hundred pounds. That's gigantic. Pit bull. Yeah. Where does it sleep? Where does he or she sleep? Oh, on, are you kidding? On the bed. On the bed. Bro. All right. Where else is he gonna sleep? <laughs> I know. No, his, he's a hundred pound pit bull named Donut, and he has uh, very severe epilepsy, and he's just the best, the best dog. Yeah, the best dog. Given your history and what you write about, and your connection to the community, what does Pride mean to you at this time of year? What do you think about Pride? I, I, I haven't actually been thinking about Pride a whole lot. I um this year I. Uh, I'm moving. Well, not moving. I'm 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 spending a few months out of the country at the end of the year, and so I made a decision a month and a half ago that I was not going to do a single ticketed event before my before I left New York. Um, I'm moving out of my place in New York, so I'm actually going to be effectively moving out of the city for a while. I'm going to Europe and and to to Germany, and um, and. So I just sort of had to kind of shut down sort of the event side of Pride. And, right. um, and then and then totally unexpected. I, God, I don't know how much of this I should say yet. But basically, long story short, I had a, a big sort of family, unexpected family thing happen in my, not like chosen family, but like family, family, like, you know. And that has just kind of swallowed my Pride Month. It's just kind of swallowed my June. And um, and so I guess normally when Pride comes around, I'm always thinking about chosen family and and not and thinking about how I, you know, I'm not as close to my biological family, but I have other family members. And this has been a weird Pride because I'm doing the opposite now. I'm suddenly my focus is my mother and my sister and my father. And, and, uh, and I, 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 this pride, I feel a bit disconnected from all the, from all the activities. 
from all the stuff. It's, it's, yeah, from all the stuff. Yeah. And I'm a little nervous. I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't think anybody isn't, you know, we've had the mass shooting in New York on the subway. We've had, you know, some, a lot of mass shootings all over the country. And, uh, and honestly, even if I hadn't been traveling out abroad, I am a little, this pride for the first, literally for the first time, the fear of, of, of danger is actually getting to me a little bit. I, um, I agree with that because you write in your book about a peer dance for pride and somebody in your story is saying, this is, if they're going to come, this is where I'd rather be. Like, there's no way I'd rather, if I'm going to get shot, this is where I want to be. I think it's yeah. Madonna's performing or, or somebody. Yeah, like, yeah. And I was like, yes, that's me. And yeah. this year I'm like, maybe I'll take a year off. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's a little bit different. I mean, I, not totally, but I'm less like, it just feels more palpable. It just feels more likely. It feels more, it feels more likely. And I don't know, like, I mean, it's New York, you know, so if you're going to make a statement, hit the city that's sort of historically very, very gay. And there's going to be so many gay men and all these, I mean, it's, it's also the first like real pride we've had. We can really go wild, you know, since the pandemic, so it's going to be so busy. The parties are going to be so full. It, it, it kind of tells you what kind of horrible country we live in because I want to, I literally want to survive until my trip overseas. Like that's where we're at. You're literally thinking about it. Yeah. That is literally where we're at. I'm like, I hope I survive another month and a half in America. And in order to do that, I don't know if I can go to big events. Right. I'm going to skip the new Beyonce song, dancing to the new Beyonce song on the pier. I'm going to skip the new Beyonce song because I, I actually now like, really want to live to like have my great overseas adventure and and i don't know man the the state of things is not well yes i hear you i'm I'm jealous that you're going to go overseas i want to travel somewhere is it is it uh for fun or are you going to be writing while you're there What's, what's your goal i'll be writing while i'm there um i do have a second book i signed a two book contract and i have to start thinking about that second book at some point so uh I will be writing, but mostly this is, um, I'll be three months primarily in Berlin. And this is sort of a trial run to see, you know, I grew up overseas. I, I never planned to stay in the U S this long. I've, I've been here way longer than I originally planned. And so, um, this is really just sort of a, a test run to see if I can find a place that, that fits. That feels right. That feels right. That feels I, right. I, 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 regardless of where it is, I, I don't think I'm going to be a, a, a New Yorker. I, I write for a living, which means I have no money in the city. So right, and because of writing, you can do it anywhere, especially. You can do it anywhere. So why am I paying New York rent prices? Yeah. Um, one of your advice columns, you talk about this idea that I know I'm going to carry with me, which is the idea of pillars, that we have pillars in our in ourselves of, of things we feel good about at any given time and maybe one pillars down, but then lean into another. Can you talk a little bit about that idea? Because I think it'll resonate. For- um, so pillars are what I call, you know, you have a house, you are a being and you have things that you prop yourself up on. And, um, and when I'm dealing with my body dysmorphia and when I feel ugly and untouchable, I, that is a signal that I have to rely on another pillar of, myself and for me i i know where my pillars lie you know i mean i i i I am proud of my body and my looks but sometimes i'm not and i know that if the looks go or heaven forbid if something happens to me where i can't go to the gym or if i get in a car crash or whatever i still have my taste my 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 whole inner self my 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 writing my 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 you know the things about living that I enjoy, the things that I do that aren't tied to the physical that I know I have to offer. Um, You know, for some people, their pillar is their ability to make music or their ability to, you know, make a lot of money or whatever. You know, I think that some pillars are more sustainable than others. I think that, you know, and, and, and physical pillars are tough because it's nice to have them, but they will go at some point. We all get older and, you know, we all can get sick. So 
you know, it's nice to have a physical pillar, but I think the, the, the most important way to combat all those negative image, you know, voices in your head over your, over your image is to cultivate pillars that are non-physical. You know, you need to be able to enjoy your perspective, your taste, your abilities, your work. Um, you know, if there's something you can do that isn't tied necessarily to commercial profit, like your ability to make art or to draw a picture or even have a good conversation with somebody like, you know, I mean, one of the most underappreciated skills in this world is a good conversationalist. You know, it's one of the greatest things I can say about somebody because it's so rare. Um, have things about you that you know you can do that will still be there even if you do get in a car accident or you do have to be out of the gym for a year. You know, that those things are so important and you have to sometimes fall back on them when the physical is down. Sometimes the physical, I mean, this is life. The physical pillar will go down at some point. You know, we will all face physical challenges. We will all get sick. And when that happens, you have to have other stronger things holding you up. Otherwise you're just going to collapse. And I know, and, and, and the thing is I know people for whom their only p- pillars are physical and I watch them just, just crumple. Yeah. When the, it goes away. Yeah. When it goes, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I know some, I know several gay men who have no confidence beyond how they look. And when that, I've watched them spiral when that, when that falls. I want to ask you about an aspect of sex that I don't see talked about very much and see if you spark to it. It's after you've had a good encounter and you're just like kind of walking back to your car. It's the after it's that spring in your step, right? That like, that just happened. Like what? I'm naughty. Like that's something that I'm sure you're familiar with, but um, I think it's under, it's unsung as a part of it. The swagger you feel after we all live for right yeah and it can carry you in a way right oh my god no Uh, what was it they did a or they pulled people who were you know near death or terminally ill what they remember and it's never the promotions or the job or the money or it is our, our lives are lived for other people our lives are we measure our lives by moments of intimacy, you know, by relationships, you know, and, and and it's the one thing that has no price tag that we all desire. That is valuable to every living person that, that can't be bought for any price. It's, 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 well, unless, you know, you hire, but which can be great. You know, um, you know, um, intimacy, sex, this is the stuff that we measure our lives in. And, And so it should not be, derided i mean i i i've i have had people say like why do you live for sex you know or or is or is all you care about sex or yeah. why are you so, why are you such a hedonist or why you know there's more to life than sex and i'm like oh is there <laughs> right. no exactly is there like we we really care about this right this is what everybody needs. Yeah. yeah no i appreciate that you mentioned the paying for it and you mentioned that that you work as an escort what's different about it than you thought it would be my work has changed so much over the years I've been doing it. Um, it, it I, I'm better at it now than I ever was before, which sucks because I'm, I'm, I'm tired. <laughs> it's exhausting. I, it's exhausting. I'm doing it for Jesus. I've been doing that for a decade. And, and since I was 19, I had my first client when I was 19. And so, so more than a, more than 10 years and, um, wow. Oh my God. So, you know, so, I, I, I know that I can't do it, you know, forever. And, and yet it sucks because I feel like I just now got good at it. I just in the last few years realized how to do it well and how to be and what kind of escort I am. You know, I, I, I'm not a porn star. I've never been good at video content. I never will be good at video content. There are people who are great at videos. They spend a lot of time and money and effort into being, very good OnlyFans stars, and that is never going to be me. I, that's not where my skill set lies. I am a old school paid companion, um, and I'm good at it because I like talking to people, and I'm decent at bed, and 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 uh, and I and I can foster a decent connection with somebody, and that is what I was um, 
that was that has been the greatest lesson of being a sex worker is that very often than not it's not about sex right people are, people want to connect with someone and uh, if you can provide if you can just be real and find something that's interesting about everybody and want to know more about them. I mean, some of the stories that my clients have told me are incredible. Yeah. They're, they're incredible people. They're amazing people. You know, they're, they knew all these celebrities back when, back in the New York heyday, you know, they're amazing people. And, um, and watch the city transform into what it is now. And, yeah, it really, if you really just listen to people and let them sort of delight you, you can do this job. Yeah. Um, no, and, and you don't have to have washboard abs and a 10-inch dick, because I don't. I'm a, I'm a normal guy with a normal dick, and, and I am not I am in, I am by no means the physical standard porn star. And, uh, and, to do what I, and to do my version of sex work, I don't have to have that. Whereas if you're a film star, you do have to sort of be... It seems like it seems like I still don't see a lot of body diversity in the porn world, which is why I've never tried to break into that. Yeah, it's never been your thing. Um, never been. What do you hope people get from your book? Uh, I hope they cry and come. <laughs> no, there it is. I love it. I'll tell you why. To me, it made me want to be more honest in my life. Just Good. across the board, it just felt like, oh, there's real power if you can if you can re- be really honest. That's my hope. I, I, I really meant what I said. I, I hope that the book acts as sort of a a battle cry against shame. Um, that's why I wrote it as as full disclosure as it is. It's just because I wanted to. For me, it is a it is a very personal assault against shame, and in in being so, I hope it helps other people to launch their own tirades against shame because because. I have talked to some social experts or sociologists or people who believe that there is such a thing as good shame. That right. certain, I've read about that, that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I have talked to people who believe that certain kinds of shame keep us in our social lanes or help mandate human behavior. And I cannot stress how much I disagree. Um, I think all shame is toxic. I think shame is literally a sickness. It will make you anxious it will it it infects everything in your life that that you love and enjoy and it is the antithesis of happiness and fulfillment so everything that we can do in our lives to fight shame it won't destabilize society it won't make us reckless crazy people we're all you know for the most part we're all acculturated we all know how to behave shame is simply this is it's the applied force of self-loathing or other people's loathing it serves no purpose but to make people miserable and it catches on like fire. It's like a virus and, um, shame must be actively fought against because it has really, I mean, look at the history of sex movements in the world. I mean, shame, if it's not actively fought, shame will catch on. There are decades of human history defined by shameful attitudes. Um, tell people how they can find your book. The the official line is the book is available everywhere books are sold. But being a small press, your local bookstore might not carry it. So you might have to go either to unboundeditionpress.com or to Amazon or, 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 or better yet, what I really tell people is the way you can best support this book is if you go to your local bookshop and ask them to order it. Because you know, when when it, when, the, when a book doesn't have necessarily the the big press package behind a, a a large press, they don't necessarily know to order a smaller indie book and, until people start asking for it. And if enough people at a, at, a, at a local bookshop ask for them to order a book, they'll order it and stock it on the shelves. And so, the best thing you can do, you know, besides shopping local and supporting private, privately owned local bookshops is to go to those shops and ask them to carry it. And most shops will order it for you. Yeah. But also it's beautifully designed. It's beautiful aesthetically. Where is your favorite place that you've seen it? Just where you got a rush from seeing it. Ooh. um, Well, there's a couple local sort of more, more like indie bookstores in Brooklyn where I've seen it actually in the window. And that's been wild. 
Um, and there's this amazing LGBT-owned, queer-owned, not necessarily a bookstore, but sort of a queer boutique in Palm Springs. And it's literally called Queer Teak. And it's owned by, by a gay man. And everything you can buy in this store is made by a queer LGBTQ maker. They don't carry anything that's not made by a queer. So, 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 so every profit that the store makes goes to either a small queer-owned business or a queer-owned designer. And when I saw that they were carrying my book, I was blown away. So that was, I think that's been my favorite so far. Um, thank you so much for this conversation. I really love your writing, and I really enjoyed talking to you. Final question: Why do you write? Because I have to. It's just what I, it's just what my body does. I don't know. It's just uh, what I'm supposed to do. You don't really have a choice. I would be doing it even if I worked for like corporate America and had to come home and write at night. I'd still be writing. I don't know how to. It's like a compulsion. I can't stop. Alexander, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, good luck with everything, and uh, hopefully our our paths will cross someday. On some yeah, on some continent or some uh, some city, or some yeah. dance floor, we'll dance. We'll go to a dance floor. That'd be amazing. What's your what song always gets you on the dance floor? Uh, well, you never really hear Depeche Mode played at circuit parties, but if they ever do sort of dip into like dark '80s synth or like uh, you know British new wave, I go bananas that's that's my jam so yeah if you can ever if you ever if you ever at a party where they start playing you know bizarre love triangle isn't that de- depression mode no all right i'm gonna cut out the part where i don't know stuff you know lots of stuff all right this was really fun uh i hope to see you sometime in real life this, is, this has been great thank you alex thank you so much Thanks again to Alexander Cheeves. His book is My Love is a Beast, Confessions. And if you're in Montreal, he's going to be doing a reading there on the 1st, the 1st of August. So learn about that at his Instagram. That's where I'm getting the info. And it looks like he's also going to be um, part of a panel uh, with at the AIDS conference up there. So if you're in Montreal, um, check out his Instagram and you can find out about that stuff. All right. So this happened. Um, two things I want to share with you. I went to see Ricky Martin uh, at the Hollywood Bowl. And um, this was right after the, the the case that was sort of going on with him in, in Puerto Rico kind of got dismissed. And uh, so Ricky was, you know, he was in a, you could tell he was feeling grateful and like relieved. He didn't talk about it at length, but you could tell he was, I, I, I predicted to the friends I was with, he's going to do at least one of those kind of yoga bows, like those grateful yoga bows. Um, which I'm no stranger to, by the way. No, no shade on that. And he did one at the end. I was like, because oh, I predicted two. And my friend was like, he only did one. And I said, yep, but he did it at the end and he held it for a while. So um, I love his performing. I love the way he moves. I like the way he bangs. And I like the way the orchestra enhanced the arrangements, particularly the Spanish ballads like... Uh, Talvez and Vuelve, which I'm probably mispronouncing, even though I've had a year and a half of Zoom Spanish. Um, but it was great. And then I bought a $5 T-shirt on the way out because, you know, it said Hollywood Bowl on the back. They were 30 bucks on the way in. On the way out, you can get it for a smile, practically. So I like my Ricky Martin shirt. There it is. Um, and the other thing is I got a Lego typewriter from my friend Felix for Christmas because I had been talking about it during the virtual games we host and he's like i'm gonna get you that so i got it and my friend danny and i spent 10 hours over two days putting it together it was very challenging but man the legos i haven't done legos since i was a kid and this was an ambitious build is the lingo and um but it was fun and the time went by fast uh but it took us a while i posted some pictures of it on my instagram which is dennis c hensley so you can see our lego typewriter and um it was fun. It, it, it was. It captured my imagination, and it was a, a real challenge. There were times when we would mess up and have to kind of backtrack. And even now, there's this tiny hole on the bottom where there's supposed to be like a tiny brick, and I, we forgot it. And now there's a hole, and you can't really get to it without undoing the whole thing. So it's part of the charm. But um, thanks to Felix for the for the gift. We really enjoyed putting it together, and it looks so cute on my desk. It's quite small. It's there's a lot going on under the hood too. Like 
you look at it and you're like, that took 10 hours? And yeah, there's a lot going on. And it kind of, the carriage moves and there's little things that happen. You can't type a letter on it, but um, it's pretty cute. Anyway, that's enough for this week. Before I let you go, I want to give a shout-out to AJ Sousa for mixing the episodes and J.B. Bursey for his additional technical support. My theme music is composed by Mark Daniels and licensed through Placement Music. That's it. We'll see you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye.